Hi, everybody. If you've been listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast for the several hundred episodes that we've produced, thank you so much. I also know that there are a lot of newcomers to the show, and there are some older episodes that, you know, let's face it, nobody wants to scroll 600 times through their phone app just to get to like episode three or episode 20 or whatever. So for those of you who do that, that's great. So actually, what we're going to do is once a month for the foreseeable future, we're going to share bonus episodes in our podcast feed. These are going to be episodes that are either timely or really popular ones that we know are super important for libertarians and Christians to listen to great conversations with all kinds of great people. So if you want to go back to episode one and start from the beginning, that'd be great. There is a lot of really great material back there, but we're also going to share some of the best. And many of them are going to actually be remastered, so the audio quality is going to be even better. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Whoa, whoa. That person doesn't sound like he has a uterus. Let's start this thing over. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Jacqueline Isaacs, and I'm guest hosting today instead of Doug, because we're talking about abortion. Joining me today are two other ladies, Carrie Baldwin and Ruth Ryder. Carrie Baldwin is an independent researcher and writer with a bachelor's in philosophy from Arizona State University. Her writing focuses on libertarian philosophy and reformed theology. She is a confessional reformed Orthodox Presbyterian in the tradition of J. Gresham Machen, an outspoken libertarian and defender of Christian orthodoxy. Ruth Ryder is an assistant editor of the Christian Libertarian Review, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. She's currently pursuing an accelerated nursing degree, but Ruth already holds master's degrees from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the University of Notre Dame. And I, Jacqueline Isaacs, am the director of strategy for Bellwether Communications. I'm the co-author of the book, Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. I'm also the voice of the upcoming audiobook version, which will be released by the Libertarian Christian Institute very soon. To learn more about that project and to be notified about when the audiobook is available, go to calltofreedombook.com. All right, ladies, welcome to this episode. Thanks, Jackie. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, me too. All right, ladies, so there's so much in the news right now and on our social media feeds about abortion, from the bills called heartbeat laws in Georgia and Alabama to the crazy things that celebrities are sharing. And much of what's being said by both sides is wrong. So today we're going to focus on some of the most egregious and significant myths and hopefully bust them wide open. So to start, can we talk about how we opened the episode um, kind of playfully the idea that only people with uteruses can have a say or opinion about abortion has been a huge meme recently. But why is that a myth? Carrie, let's go to you. Yeah, well, um, of course it's a myth because you don't have to have a uterus to have an opinion on abortion. Um, obviously, both men and women take part in procreation. So, I mean, on its face, it's it's a little ridiculous to say that only people with uteruses can can have an opinion. But, you know, 
here we are. And the other fascinating thing about this is the fact that when people say only people with uteruses can have a conversation on abortion, it's almost like saying if only women talk about this, then the foregone conclusion is that abortion should be legal and we're all going to have a per-choice opinion here. Ruth, why would you say that it's a myth that only people with uteruses can have an opinion about abortion? Well, of course, the right to life is a human right, which is common to both men and women. And I think that allows men to have an opinion. And besides, as a libertarian, I don't like being in the business of dictating who's allowed to express opinions on what topics. And I think a lot of this myth comes from an idea that the pro-life movement is largely a patriarchal initiative and that women are mostly pro-choice. But some recent Pew and Gallup polls actually showed that men and women hold pretty similar views on abortion. It breaks pretty much equally. So even if men were cut out of the conversation, there are just as many pro-life women who would still engage in this debate. So as we said, there's myths and misinformation on both sides of the abortion debate. And since we are equal opportunity mythbusters today, let's start with some of the myths that actually come from the pro-life side of this debate. Our first pro-life myth is that we can end abortion by enacting strong legislation that criminalizes abortion because legislation acts as behavioral deterrence. Carrie, why is that a myth? Well, that's a myth because uh, the legal aspect is just one aspect of the of the abortion issue. You have an ethical aspect, you have relationship aspects, you have economic aspects, and the economic aspects I think are uh, probably even more important than the legal aspects. But it's foolish to reduce abortion to just the single aspect of of any one of these things but particularly when it comes to legislation, because it's based on this idea that all we have to do to solve this problem is just write some words on a piece of paper and have some some suits at the state legislature, you know, agree with it, and then boom, we're done. You know, it's, it's banned, therefore nobody's going to seek it out. And, mm-hmm. you know, as libertarians, we know that that's, that's, not the whole story. Economics plays probably a bigger role in dealing with this issue. And since there is a demand for abortion, we have to take that into consideration. We have to view it from an economic aspect and actually address the demand because all the all the legislation will do is make it possible for a black market to be created. Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads us into the next pro-life myth, which is that a black market for abortions won't be created because back alley abortions were just a lie constructed by pro-abortion advocates, right? This is something that we hear from pro-lifers and maybe have even repeated ourselves um, regularly. But as you were sort of alluding to, that's not exactly accurate. Where there's a demand, um, people will come in to meet the demand. So why is that myth specifically about whether there will or won't be a black market, why is it a myth that there won't be a black market for abortions? Part of the reason why this myth exists is because prior to Roe v. Wade, you didn't really have a black market demand for abortion. I'm sure that you had people who were seeking it out, and you certainly had doctors who were performing it illegally. But the 
idea of back alley abortions with coat hangers, uh, that is actually a myth, as it turns out. And there's a book, uh, which I have not personally read myself, but I have I've read excerpts and I've heard other people talk about it. It is called Subverted, and it discusses how the sexual revolution hijacked the women's rights movement. And that's sort of how abortion came into uh, the conversation. But one of the things that they discuss in that book is the, this idea that back alley abortions and and the uh, threat to women's lives if abortion wasn't legalized was all a lie. It was all fabricated in order to uh, drum up support for abortion. But the other side of this myth comes from, there was a study done in Chile on maternal mortality rates. And they studied the maternal mortality rate both before and after abortion was outlawed in Chile. And in the study, what they found was that there was a dramatic reduction in mortality rates, not due to outlawing abortion, but due to women's education level, delivery by skilled attendants, access to clean water, access to sanitary sewer systems, that sort of thing. But those are economic factors, not legal factors. And so what the pro-life people do with this study is they point out that the maternal mortality rate didn't increase after abortion was outlawed. And so they sort of take the results of that study out of its context, which is economic. And they say, look, um, back alley abortions were a lie. You didn't have women dying because of this. And Chile uh, banned abortion and you didn't have an increase in these maternal mortality rates. And so they sort of translate that to there won't be a black market for abortions, but they don't understand how a black market occurs. So mm-hmm. uh, I, let me just let me just explain how a, how a black market works really quickly. So black markets occur when there's an economic demand for a product or service, and since that product or service isn't sanctioned by the government, it the government withholds justice when aggression occurs. So on a white market, which is a legal market, there are channels sanctioned by the government um, to seek restitution or recompense for injustice. But on a black market, this this doesn't happen because the the government has withdrawn its administration of civil governance. And so violence is resorted to as a means of seeking recompense for injustice. So civil justice cannot exist on the black market, not because it's a market that avoids the government, but because the government, which has monopolized civil governance, avoids the black market. In fact, it can and does become the aggressor itself by participating in something called the red market, which is what you have Mm. with the drug war. So it's not unreasonable that in today's authoritarian climate with the demand for abortion services and the demand for fetal tissue, that a black market will be created and that a war on abortion from the conservative side would look a lot like the war on drugs, especially since so-called pro-life policy tends to be at the expense of women's self-ownership. So this pro-life myth that a black market won't won't get created comes from not understanding how economics works, how the demand factors in, and they don't understand the threat that does exist from having the authoritarian climate that we have right now. Now, libertarians know about, we're, we're very aware of the authoritarian climate that we have, 
because we talk about it all the time. We talk about the fact that 40% of cops beat their wives. We talk about how strip searches for drugs are happening on the side of the road. Even, you know, women cops and female victims. We talk about no-knock raids happening on, you know, wrong families and children and pets are dying as a result. So we talk about these things all the time. And if we understand why that exists, why the drug war exists, why the black market for drugs exists, there's no good reason to ignore that when it comes to abortion and how enforcement of those laws would would look. So we have some reason to want to be cautious about the way things are playing out in these states that are that are banning abortion. Some of them, I think, uh, you know, the Alabama law is written in such a way that it looks like it just reverses Roe v. Wade. But the Georgia law and the Texas law, I think, take some additional steps that might cause some damage. But it's tempting to, it's tempting on the pro-life side to falsely correlate studies like the one in Chile. And I think that pro-lifers so very much want to, you know, save the lives of the unborn and, and they don't believe that all of these negative things will happen. It's just a matter of getting that law in the books. But they do a disservice to their own cause and they do a disservice to women by not understanding the economics. So pro-life libertarians should be out in front on this issue, especially when it comes to women's self-ownership and how to properly distinguish it on the abortion issue. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier when you first brought up the the Chilean study that um, it's sort of a classic correlation does not equal causation fallacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. That it, it just neatly fits the narrative that pro-lifers want to believe. But if that's not the truth about the world, if that's not reality, then it's not advancing our case. Right. Yes, um, exactly. Ruth, do you have a comment here? Um, it only goes back to what Carrie was talking about uh, a little bit earlier about how the data was fabricated for the pro-choice side about the thousands of deaths due to coat hanger back alley abortions. So this is more of a pro-choice myth. But um, my only thought on that was also we wouldn't see that sort of thing nowadays anyway, just around the same time that Roe v. Wade happened. Um, there was a change in abortion procedures Prior to that, it had been uh, just a DNC or what was also called sharp curatage, which was where they basically just scraped out the inside of the uterus. So with this, there was a higher risk of perforation, hemorrhage, and death. Um, And there's still a risk of that today, but around the same time as Roe v. Wade, vacuum aspiration abortions uh, became popularized, which is much safer. And then, of course, now we also have the abortion pill. So I think that what we'd be seeing is either safer aspiration abortions or um, the abortion pill uh, obtained illegally, which is not quite the same Mm -hmm. as uh, having a coat hanger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with your uh, medical background, Ruth, and medical knowledge that you're bringing to the table here, um, I want to direct this next myth. Um, It's the third pro-life myth, but the fourth myth that we've tackled so far in this podcast, which is that there is never a compelling medical reason to terminate a pregnancy. So why is that a pro-life myth? Well, apparently there are some pro-lifers who 
don't think that ectopic pregnancies are very dangerous. And that's because sometimes the ectopic pregnancy is in the woman's abdomen. So when that happens, there is a chance that the baby will survive. But most of the time it's in a fallopian tube, which has a much higher risk for the mother. So they get these two different types of ectopic pregnancies confused. And also some of them don't like to refer to the uh, procedure of removing an ectopic pregnancy as an abortion. So they don't count that. It's just, they put that in a different class. But if we're being honest, uh, with an ectopic pregnancy, we are terminating a pregnancy. The question then becomes, when is it ethically justifiable to terminate a pregnancy? And with an ectopic pregnancy, unfortunately, it is if it's in a fallopian tube, because if it doesn't miscarry on its own, she's going to need to undergo a procedure or take a medication called methotrexate, which is actually a chemotherapy drug, to cause the death of the embryo or to remove it in order that she won't hemorrhage. And it's basically a question of, are we going to have one person die or two people die? And so in this case, of course, Mm. it makes more sense to spare the life of the mother because we don't need two people dying because we're Mm pro-life. And that's a sort of a classic triage mentality too, right? Uh, Yeah, I would say that it is. uh, You have to prioritize things in triage. Like if someone doesn't have a chance at all of survival, you're not going to prioritize their care. And with an ectopic pregnancy, if it's in the fallopian tube, it's never going to be viable, but it does have a risk the further it's allowed to progress of causing the woman to die. But at the same time, in other life-threatening pregnancies, when the baby is uh, much bigger uh, and when we have conditions such as uh, preeclampsia or eclampsia when the mother's blood pressure uh, becomes extremely high and she has other conditions that go along with that. The baby is usually delivered early and that's the goal. With most life-threatening pregnancies, you do terminate the pregnancy, but we have to remember that delivering the baby is another way of terminating that pregnancy. But there are other times when we might want to do even earlier delivery when a woman has a terminally ill baby. And this does happen sometimes when a baby has a condition such as anencephaly. Because with anencephaly, the baby is likely to die at some point in the womb and be stillborn. So some women uh, or parents decide that they're going to deliver their baby a little earlier to give them a chance to bond with their baby while it's still alive. And while I'm not necessarily advocating early delivery, um, I don't think it's necessarily something that should be lumped together with elective abortion. It's something that needs to be decided on an individual basis between parents and not only their physicians, but also with the guidance of a perinatal hospice team, which I'll discuss a little bit later. When you're delivering a baby early who has a life-limiting condition, I think ethically it's a little more comparable to removing life support, especially if it's done after the period of viability when life-sustaining measures could be performed if that seemed advisable after the baby was born. But yes, in this case, since the baby is never really going to be viable outside of the womb, it does seem to be something that we should think of more along the lines of removing life support of a terminally ill person than 
to elective abortion. So again, I think we need to think about these things on an individual basis and not lump all forms of pregnancy termination together with elective abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely cases that I think pro-lifers tend not to to think about. I mean, they are rare cases, but they're also what makes us sad and uncomfortable. And, you know, we don't want to think about those sort of worst case scenarios, um, but they do happen. And um, having compassionate alternatives for the the terminally ill babies and the women that carry them is definitely an important thing for pro-lifers to be thinking about. Yeah, definitely. So turning to the pro-choice or pro-abortion myths, uh, this might be what our listeners are waiting for, for, for you ladies to take down the popular abortion arguments. So let's not keep them waiting any longer. Um, our fifth myth for you, Ruth, is that embryos are just a clump of cells. Well, that is, of course, a myth, but I will go ahead and debunk it. So what I say, based on the opinion of a certain embryologist that I've read, is that a new human life exists once the process of conception is successfully completed, and this results in a zygote. And I say it this way because the process of conception takes about 24 hours, and there are several things that could go wrong during this, and sometimes it doesn't work out. Now, the thing to remember about clumps of cells is grown in a lab, and I've never done this. But what I've read is that they need to be stimulated to grow and divide. They don't just do it on their own. They're not self-directing. They need to be guided by the person working in the lab to do what they want them to do. In contrast, there was a study in 2016 which showed that human embryos from the moment that conception is completed continue to develop in a laboratory environment even past the stage where they would normally implant in the uterus. Mm. And this confirms that they are entirely self-directed, exercising what could be understood as a form of autonomy. So unlike cells in a Petri dish, the cells of the embryo are all oriented toward the same goal, and that is its own successful implantation development and flourishing. Mm -hmm. And that's important information because a lot of arguments for the plan B pill and things like that, or is that that, uh, a zygote isn't viable until implantation. Um, But this research is showing that that's not necessarily the case, that in a laboratory environment, uh, it absolutely is self-directed and therefore, you know, a a separate entity that should be considered. Right. It's not just a cult of cells. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And this is this is an also an important point when it comes to understanding self, the self ownership of the fetus, which is an argument that I make. And that self direction, that autonomy, is what's necessary in identifying what's known as the objective link. And that's what we use in in libertarian philosophy to be able to say that somebody has self ownership, as they they have those biological processes are what's in charge. It's it's the direct and immediate control is under the the power of the the zygote at that moment rather than the mother so the mother's control is is indirect at that point whereas the zygote's control is direct mm-hmm. um and that's why we can say that yes there is a case to be made for for fetal self ownership and the rights from conception 
or from, as Ruth said, the completion of conception, which is when it becomes a zygote. And I mean, even as far as these heartbeat bills are concerned, that means that the heartbeat bills actually fall short because they're not actually upholding the true rights of of the fetus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is sort of the next um, hurdle that pro-choicers make unborn babies cross. <laughs> um, the next myth is that embryos don't have heartbeats, especially not at six weeks because they don't have hearts. And that's why legislation like heartbeat laws or, or personhood laws are misguided. Um, but that is definitely a myth. Yes, it is. Uh, pro-choices are desperate to make the case that embryos at six weeks don't have hearts. I saw it on a Popular Science article. And celebrities like Alyssa Milano are trying to get us to stop calling it a heartbeat and start calling it fetal pole cardiac activity, which actually means the exact same thing. It just is depersonalized. But the fact is that at three weeks post-conception or about five weeks of gestation, so when a woman's five weeks pregnant, um, the embryo has only been developing for three weeks and it already has a cardiovascular system that's begun to form. And actually the embryonic cardiovascular system is the first fully functioning body system that the embryo has. And that's because the embryo needs to circulate nutrients and oxygen in order to continue its development because it's getting too big at this point. So by five weeks or three weeks post-conception, it has cardiac muscle cells that have formed a tube. And this tube is the primordial heart. And it's connected to early blood vessels already. And these blood vessels are also forming primordial blood cells that are starting to flow through these little vessels. And then uh, right around 21, 22 days post-conception, those cells start to contract. And this is what makes the first heartbeats that you can hear at about four weeks post-conception or when the woman is six weeks pregnant. And then over the next four weeks after that, this heart tube folds in on itself and it develops into the four-chambered heart. So by the time we have an eight-week-old embryo uh, or the woman's 10 weeks pregnant, it already has the four-chambered heart that it's going to have essentially for the rest of its life. Hmm. And if we consider that the purpose of a heart is to function as a blood pump, that's exactly how this early heart tube is functioning. So it seems a little ridiculous to say that it's not a heart because it's not a four-chambered heart that it's going to have in a few weeks. But what they're really trying to say when they're making this argument is that if we think that the heartbeat is what grants the embryo its personhood, then it doesn't have its personhood yet. But they're making the mistake that they often do of attempting to tie a metaphysical or philosophical concept that is personhood to a biological feature of development. Yeah, this is this is really an important point to make. Is you know when when we're talking about a fetus and whether it's a human being. There are two things going on in that term. Human is is a biological category, but being is a, a metaphysical or philosophical concept. And, you know, philosophers are still debating about what makes you a person. And we know that there are things entailed in personhood like will and consciousness and sentience and things like that. But these are abstract concepts and we can't actually empirically 
uh, study them like you can in science. So science is never going to answer the question of when personhood begins. And more importantly, we don't want the government defining when personhood begins. Because if we're saying that you can be a human and not a person, then we're making the same mistake that, that we've made throughout history, which is to try and segregate human beings into different groups that are more or less persons. And that's just, that's a mistake. And it's certainly not libertarian. Um, we have our rights by way of our humanity, and we don't need the government making definitions of, of personhood. Science can't make these definitions. And so there's no reason in the world why this abortion debate should be contingent upon whether or not a fetus is a person. It's a human, it's scientifically considered a new, unique living human. And that's what's important. So once you can get a pro-choicer to say, okay, maybe it's not a clump of cells, maybe uh, it does have biological functions like a heartbeat, uh, sometimes you'll get the argument that even so, the fetus is a parasite if it's not wanted. Why is that a myth? Well, I think that a lot of us have seen recently that there was this professor, a, I think it was a graduate level biology professor out in California who made the argument that a fetus is literally a parasite or cancer. And I've also heard this from people who should know better. Um, but this is just one of the silliest arguments that I've ever heard. Seems like it's coming from people who have never heard about reproduction before and just stumbled upon it. And they're wondering, is this cancer? Is this a parasite? What is going on? <laughs> but meanwhile, the field of biology has recognized that this is a phenomenon known as reproduction, which is a biologically desirable state for living organisms. The ability to reproduce is also one of the criteria for determining that some things are alive, like trees, and that others are not, such as rocks. The process of reproduction is also so biologically desirable that our bodies are wired to achieve that goal since the time we're in the womb. For example, female fetuses have all of their eggs in their ovaries by about 15 weeks gestation. It's also why we have sex organs that respond to sex hormones and which give the women, give women the chance to become pregnant every month. It's obvious to me that the biological favorability of reproduction is why a woman's body prepares to continue to feed the baby after it's born through lactation. We don't do this when we have parasites. We don't plan for when they leave because they're never going to leave. We're in a pathological state. We need to get rid of them. Also, when women do become pregnant, their bodies don't launch an immunological attack against the embryo as if it were a protozoan. Uh, they accommodate the pregnancy by lowering their immune response, and this is called maternal fetal tolerance. Mm -hmm. And this actually begins even before implantation occurs. Now, this is interesting to me because most people are unaware that the mother's body knows that conception has occurred and that it, they think that it only knows that it's pregnant once the implanted embryo begins secreting HCG, which is what gives you a positive pregnancy test. But even before implantation, the embryo, which is called a morula or blastocyst at this stage, has begun secreting a chemical called early pregnancy factor. And it can be detected 
about 48 hours after conception in the, in the mother's blood. And what it does is it tells her body to adjust its immune response in preparation for implantation so that it doesn't try to reject it. Um, in contrast, for example, if the mother were to get an organ transplant, she might need immunosuppressive therapy for the rest of her life to prevent her body from rejecting it. But a pregnant woman doesn't need this because her body has suppressed it all on its own. And it seems that you know, we could say that the mother's body has essentially given the embryo an engraved invitation. This is far from it being a parasite. So when I hear this argument that it is a parasite, it just, it seems to me that pro-choicers have decided that they don't believe the conclusions of biological science and they need the entire argument laid out for them again to prove that pregnancy is distinguishable from parasitism. And I should add, there are parasites that you can acquire from having sex, but a human fetus is not recognized as one of them. <laughs> I love that, Ruth. Um, so, okay, okay. Uh, a pro-choicer might say if it's not a parasite, it is still a trespasser if it's not wanted, if the pregnancy wasn't planned, um, if it came in, in came about in certain uh, sets of circumstances, um, the fetus is a trespasser, and that still is a reason for abortions, but Carrie, why is that a myth? Right. So this is this is the one that you're going to hear in uh, libertarian circles. Um, it, it was it was made popular by Murray Rothbard, um, who also incidentally uh, tried to call the fetus a parasite as well. Although he seems to be using it in a pejorative sense. But in any case, um, it was first started by by Murray Rothbard and then expanded upon by uh, Dr. Walter Block, who has been, um, he's basically taken this position for the past uh, 42 years. And this comes from a perspective that, um, okay, well, we're, we're going to go ahead and concede the possibility that uh, this is a new life and that it does have rights but it doesn't, the fetus doesn't have a right to, to be in the woman's body. And so this is, this is, doc, this is uh, Dr. Block's position. He acknowledges that, that this is a new, unique living human and that it has rights, you know, basic rights to, to life. But there's sort of a, there's a rights violation that he would claim that uh, the fetus is actually trespassing the mother's womb. Uh, so a trespasser is just someone who enters a piece of property without permission. And of course, uh, self-ownership is the idea that we own ourselves. And so the, the woman's body is the woman's property. So I argue that a fetus, one, doesn't actually enter the, the property of the woman. Rather, it's a product of combined human action, which emerges within the woman. So, you know, it can't trespass if its point of origin is from within the place that, that we're alleging it trespasses. Um, but two, I argue that the fetus doesn't actually need permission to be there. In cases of uh, voluntary sexual intercourse, whether pregnancy was in, was the intended goal or not. Um, if the act of se sexual intercourse was voluntary, then the fetus doesn't need any particular permission to be in the mo mother's uterus because we all know that 
even though it's not guaranteed, there are times when it when it doesn't work. We know that one possible outcome of having sex is getting pregnant. And we are certainly free to choose, but we're not free from the consequences of our choices. Um, so mm. I actually, I argue for a limited positive rights case based in the uniqueness of the parent-offspring relationship. Essentially, this is the idea that there's a limited proprietary interest or objective link that the parents have in their children, and this is what gives them their unique claims to their children. In other words, you know, parental rights. But that unique claim also entails a positive rights obligation to life support. So if I'm right about this, because libertarians don't like the idea of, of positive rights and their their right mm-hmm. to be very wary of this, because usually when we hear about positive rights, we're hearing about, you know, a right to health care or a right to welfare or a right, right, right. those sorts of things. Um, Attributed but if, to the government. Right. It's it's the government creating some obligation on the part of, of another person. But if I'm right about how the parent offspring relationship creates a a limited positive right just in that relationship, then it actually explains why the government doesn't have the authority to create positive rights and impose those those positive rights on, on others. Now, in the case of rape, where the woman's involvement is involuntary, a positive right is not created against her, but it is created against the rapist. And uh, the parental rights claim of the rapist as quote-unquote father is negated by his act of aggression in creating the offspring. Uh, So basically, since his very first action as quote-unquote father is one of violence, it constitutes child abuse, and therefore the only objective link left is the offspring's claim of restitution against the rapist. But this doesn't mean that a woman can respond to the fetus's presence in her body as though it's a trespasser. In libertarian legal theory, we also have the non-aggression principle. And the non-aggression principle certainly allows us to use self-defense. And, you know, that's the idea here is that if the fetus is a trespasser, then the woman can use self-defense by evicting it. But abortion is not a proportional response. So Dr. Block's idea with the trespasser and evicting the trespasser, the fetus in this case, evictionism says that a woman has a right to evict at any stage of the pregnancy, but in the, in the gentlest manner possible. So Block and I would agree that after the point of viability, the mother is responsible for finding a suitable life support environment for her fetus if she wants to you know, essentially have an, an early delivery, she would be obligated to, you know, find somebody to actually provide life support for that fetus, be it an adoptive family or, you know, if technology has advanced, you know, an artificial womb, something, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but Block's argument is that eviction prior to viability necessitates killing, which is abortion, because there's no other way to evict. So he's saying that if her right to evict the trespasser doesn't avoid 
killing it, then you know, that's what we're left with. So this actually doesn't seem to be in line with the proportional response of self-defense, which says that you cannot, you cannot use more than what is necessary to stop the aggression uh, without actually becoming an aggressor yourself. So if killing is your own only option in a non-life-threatening situation, so we mentioned earlier that in cases where a woman's life is threatened, that's, that's a completely different scenario. But if killing is your only option in a non-life-threatening situation, that actually necessitates a non-lethal response, especially because, um, and Dr. Block and I agree on this point too, that even though he would call it a trespasser, I don't call it a trespasser, but he, he calls it a trespasser who hasn't actually intended to commit a rights violation or a crime essentially. And so since there's no intent to actually commit a crime, that only further necessitates a non-lethal response. So of course, this means that a woman who gets pregnant from a contraception failure or from a rape, what you have is a, is a situation where the fetus isn't actually trespassing. And even if the woman doesn't have the desire to continue carrying the fetus, that she's obligated to uh, at least carry it to viability on the basis that the fetus is a self-owner and that the proportional response requires a non-lethal response to the fetus's presence. Now, this obviously would prohibit legal abortion in a libertarian situation, but it also incentivizes the market um, to innovate making viability earlier. And this is this is one of Dr. Block's goals. He's hoping that 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 you know viability ends up going all the way to conception, or as close to conception as as possible, so that so that women do have the greatest choice possible when it comes to unwanted pregnancies and that that choice is life affirming. But the question is, what do we do until we get to that point? What does, is a woman legally obligated to, um, to a non-lethal response, which excludes abortion. And in that, um, in libertarian theory, since we have the non-aggression principle and the proportional response, I would say, no, she doesn't have the right to use a lethal method of eviction just to relieve herself of that unwanted pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I liked the example, Carrie, that you had shared with us off air of if a child wandered into your home, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you don't have the, you know, it's not wanted there. It's in your property. It might be uh, disrupting your, you know, daily life, Mm -hmm. but you don't have the right to kill it. You have, you know, obligations to um, care for and provide for that child, or at least society would, would say, you know, you have obligations um, to care for and provide for that child or, you know, until you can find its parents. (laughs) Sure. Well, the, the, the idea with that is, you know, especially when it comes to a child, I think, because, you know, Block and even Rothbard would agree that a child isn't a full-fledged human actor um, in the in the sense that in the sense that adults are. And 
So, you know, if a child wanders into, you know, a, a vacant apartment or onto somebody's property, our response isn't, you know, to, to shoot them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the very least, it's to say, well, why are you here? Where are your parents? Here, let's go find your parents. Um, hmm, that's strange. I can't find your parents. Well, let's let's find, you know, what's what's the next option? I mean, in our society, we would probably call the police and say, hey, there's this child. We can't find their parents. Right. And, you know, the point is, is that you try every possible option to actually make sure that that child is taken care of. And that doesn't necessarily mean bring it into your home and treat it as your own child until the parents are found, although it could include that. But the point is, is that you're not going immediately to, well, I don't want this child here. Mm-hmm. And even though it didn't intend to be here, uh, the only way that I can really get rid of the problem is to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's not where we go. We would say, no, that that's absolutely unacceptable uh, in a libertarian legal situation. I mean, it's, shoot, it's, it's unacceptable now. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so if we can get all the way to the point that you're, you're talking with a pro-choice uh, person and they accept, yes, okay, maybe this is an unborn child, um, oftentimes you'll still get the response that there are lots of medical reasons to terminate a pregnancy. And... Uh, we need to consider all of these overwhelming volume of cases where there's medical reasons to terminate the pregnancy. So, Ruth, since this is a medical question, uh, let's let's go back to you. Um, why is this a myth that there are lots of medical reasons to terminate pregnancies? Okay, so if you recall my discussion earlier about ectopic pregnancies and other life-threatening pregnancies, an ectopic pregnancy is a justifiable medical reason to terminate a pregnancy. But in any other case, the goal is to deliver the baby and take care of both, to provide the best care possible to both. So you want to prolong the pregnancy as long as possible to give the baby the best chance. And then when it's necessary, deliver the baby, care for them both. Unfortunately, there is also a lot of confusion among even physicians, or perhaps it's not confusion. Maybe that's a little too charitable. I'm not sure. But there does seem to be a lot of concern with liability. And so a lot of times you will have abortion recommended as being necessary due to the mother's health. But in reality, it's not. It's more due to the physician's own concerns in case anything at all were to go wrong. And there's a mm-hmm. possibility that they could be sued. They are better off legally if they recommend abortion because there's this legal concept of a wrongful birth, but there is no concept of a wrongful abortion. This doesn't exist. It's not something doctors worry about. I read an article by Dr. Thomas Murphy Goodwin, who's the chief of maternal fetal medicine at the University of Southern California, who wrote about this issue of liability. He said, For many physicians, it translates into simply recommending every possible test and erring on the side of suggesting abortion whenever there's a question of risk to the mother or child, and that there's this tremendous imbalance between the liability in not informing the mother of risks compared to the liability of suggesting the alternative of abortion. And I've actually experienced this a little bit, even with my own current pregnancy, 
as you know, I'm currently at the time of recording 25 weeks pregnant with my second child. And this pregnancy started off a little unusual. Um, I had several ultrasounds uh, early on because I've had a couple of miscarriages. Um, and at one of those early ultrasounds, uh, my doctor said she thought it looked like I might have a really rare form of ectopic pregnancy mm. called an interstitial pregnancy. And an interstitial pregnancy is technically in the fallopian tube, but it's right inside the part of the fallopian tube as it's passing through the wall of the uterus. So on an ultrasound, it looks like it's in the uterus, but it's not. And if it's not caught, then at about 12 weeks, it can cause not only the fallopian tube, but also the uterus to rupture, which leads to massive hemorrhage. So a couple of times my OB had asked me, if this was a pregnancy that was important to me, mm. implying that if not, then I could just not take the risk of having my uterus rupture and get the injection of methotrexate that would terminate the pregnancy. However, when I found out what she thought it was, I started doing as much research as I could on the topic. And I found out that this can't really be definitively diagnosed without an MRI or a laparoscopic surgery. So at my appointment, when she asked again if this was a pregnancy that was important to me, I told her, yes, and I know that I need an MRI in order to find out for sure what's going on because I'm not going to make any decision unless I know for sure that that is something that I have to do. So I got the MRI, which showed that everything was normal. It was inside my uterus. It was totally fine. So had I just listened to her and not done my research and taken the methotrexate, that would have ended my baby's life unnecessarily. And this is likely because she was concerned about the liability of me hemorrhaging to death mm -hmm. um, because she didn't catch this interstitial pregnancy. Mm. And then this leads me to another interesting uh, point. I wrote an article recently that was um, posted at LCI and at Fee about women using cannabis to treat hyperemesis gravidarum. And hyperemesis gravidarum, uh, this is severe morning sickness where these women can't even keep down water. And so they become severely dehydrated and malnourished. And in some cases, it's so bad that Either doctors are recommending abortion, even though that's not standard treatment, or women are seeking it out themselves because they feel so desperate because they're not being taken seriously, or they're not being given the treatment that they, that they need in order to function and not stay in the hospital getting IV fluid. So some of them are breaking the law to use cannabis because they found that it's the only thing that helps them deal with this hyperemesis and keep anything down for their own health and their babies. So this is just another example of an alleged medical reason for terminating a pregnancy that's really not justified at all. And the only reason it exists is because government is preventing women from having effective treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, Ruth, we are certainly uh, very thankful to hear about your own pregnancy and that, that it was not that worst case scenario that the doctor was worried about and warning about. And it's it's a good reminder for women to be their own advocates in these situations and, you know, ask for, you know, in your case, an MRI uh, for confirmation and not just go with it. Because one of the things that 
bothers me about these statistics when doctors recommend getting an abortion is there's no way to confirm if the doctor was right. Mm -hmm. We don't know how many of these cases doctors recommend abortions, um, like, like you said, likely out of trying to protect themselves. And it turns out they weren't needed at all. And we hear about these cases when women don't get the abortion, when they, um, when they are their own advocate and their, and their child's advocate. And it turns out that what the doctor was worried about wasn't, wasn't the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a related issue, and you were, you were kind of touching on this when you were talking about the availability of cannabis for, for women treating their, their illnesses during pregnancy. And you alluded to it earlier in the previous conversation about terminally ill babies. But another myth from the pro-choice side is that abortion is the most compassionate option for women with terminally ill babies. Uh, and that it's a compassionate option for the babies too. Um, why is that a myth, Ruth? I think this is a myth because it's short-sighted and it lacks imagination, which is what abortion does. And it lacks compassion and understanding for what the mother is actually going through and what it is that she wants. But there's another option that I don't hear discussed hardly ever. And it could be because it's a fairly recent uh, development in the medical community. And that is perinatal hospice and palliative care. There are a lot of hospitals that provide some sort of uh, counseling and sort of hospice care for women who are going to deliver terminally ill babies. But this is also developing now where as it's a team that's dedicated and focused to providing this care for women who are going to have a baby with a life-limiting condition. And so what this does is it focuses on offering emotional support, providing comfort to the parents, even while she's still pregnant, early in her pregnancy when she finds out uh, her baby's condition. And they also focus on helping the parents to bond with their baby and make memories because these providers recognize that what the parents really want is to be heard and to be understood to have their baby recognized as being valuable instead of treated like it no longer has value because it has this condition and isn't going to live long. Mm. What these parents want is to be given the opportunity to still be that baby's parents for however long they're able. And there's something we need to remember, which is that none of us really knows how long we have to live. And the same goes for babies who are diagnosed with these life-limiting conditions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the baby will live only minutes, maybe hours or days, or sometimes even years. And all of that is life, and that life is precious to the families. That's why providers of perinatal hospice don't use the term incompatible with life, for example, because these babies do have life for however long it lasts, and it's valuable for making memories with those parents. It also helps them to love their baby, fulfill their longing to be the baby's parents, and it helps them to grieve. It makes the child's passing bittersweet instead of just simply bitter and empty. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I've learned from watching some videos from this perinatal hospice and palliative care group, is that abortion is often presented to the parents as the only option. And many parents don't even know about it or have access to perinatal hospice. And their doctors don't even know it's an option, but these parents would choose it 
if they knew about it or had access. Mm -hmm. And so this is obviously a need that's being largely unmet and it's being overshadowed by the emphasis on abortion as just it's what you do when you have a baby who's not going to live long. Mm -hmm. And that sort of brings the conversation back to these economic realities that if we allowed the free market to play out a little bit more in this space and allowed people to be innovative and to pursue op, you know these different options that there would be more demand for things like perinatal hospice that we're we're just not seeing right now. Well, and I think also, you know, I I kind of want to hit back on this self-ownership concept because you know, the Mm-hmm. The argument that comes from the pro-choice side is that women have agency, we have a right to choose, we have a right to be educated and informed, and yet here we have an example of the medical industry not actually honoring that, not honoring our agency, our ability to choose, our our right to understand what is going on and what all of our options are. Instead, they're making the decision for us simply by saying, hey, you need to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that isn't a pro-woman stance. I mean, you you have a situation where abortion is legal and abortion is supposed to be the fundamental right of women and is the hallmark of, of women's choice. And you have a classic example here of how that just simply isn't true. What's what's more important in these situations is that the doctor doesn't get sued and not a woman exercising her agency and her choice in how they want to parent a terminally ill baby. And this may be going a little bit off on a, a tangent, but I'll try and keep it <laughs> keep it short. Um, but this this conversation also brings up the idea that uh, some of these conditions might be overstated. I mean, mm-hmm. the the classic example is Down syndrome and women being recommended to abort Down syndrome pregnancies. Um, and in, in many countries, it's, it's almost a 100% rate of abortion uh, when Down syndrome is suspected, which to me is... Uh, I mean, it's, it's a personal issue. So for full disclosure, I do have a, a family member with Down syndrome and it's... Yeah, the the idea that this person can't enjoy their full life mm-hmm. uh, it's just shocking and appalling to me. And I and I feel like making that a doctor looking a woman in the face and saying that your child with Down syndrome or many other uh, medical conditions can't live a full life is, I think, directly misleading, uh, intentionally misleading, and as as you said, doesn't doesn't affirm women in making good choices, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it also says that our society has no room for people with disabilities. And I'm not even convinced that Down syndrome is, I mean, maybe it is in some cases. I'm not convinced it's a disability in all cases. I mean, we had... uh, we had a, a business owner here. I can't remember his name, mm-hmm. um, but he he used to own a restaurant and he had Down syndrome. That was his, his dream was to become a restaurant owner. And he made national headlines as being the first person with Down syndrome to actually own and run a restaurant. And the thing that actually made his restaurant unique was that he would greet everybody at the door and give them hugs, which I think is mm-hmm. something pretty hallmark of Down syndrome mm-hmm. people to do is to just love life and and love bull. And 
and want to do that. I mean, in my opinion, I think people with Down syndrome have something to teach us about how to be humans. And here we are killing them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the the disabled the disability part of Down syndrome is certainly in sort of the the physical conditions. Um, there's typically a heart condition and mm. and things like that. But medical technology has advanced so much that there's treatments for all of all of those conditions. And I think that's another thing that we're missing out on when we recommend terminating pregnancies that we, that they would deem incompatible with life, as Ruth already <laughs> addressed, that not being a great term. Um, right. Is that we're, we're missing out on the advances of medical technology in mm-hmm. addressing any of those disabilities. Right. Um, that we uh, could be pursuing and, and saving lives. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, from an economic perspective, the market responds when there are needs. And these needs for medical in- innovation aren't coming to the surface, rising to the surface, because right now that's being answered with with abortion. And we need the market to respond to these needs if we're going to have the medical advancements, if we're going to have the the, you know, leaps and bounds in in innovation and technology. We need to have those needs rise to the surface so that people in the market can answer that call. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about this for for hours, but I do want to yeah, move, know. <laughs> move us on towards, um, we've got one last myth here we want to address. And it's, it's, it's not entirely a myth. It's sort of a half-baked truth um, that's usually deployed as what we could call a myth, but that is that if we limit access to abortion with legislation like what's happening in some of these states we've mentioned, Georgia, Alabama, if we basically, if we overturn Roe v. Wade, women will be prosecuted for pursuing abortions. Uh, They'll be uh, suspected and scrutinized when they have miscarriages and the world of The Handmaid's Tale will come true and we're all going to live in this dystopian reality if we get rid of abortions. So Carrie, why is that final myth a myth? Well, this one's a tough one um, because it is not necessarily a myth. Um, So The Handmaid's Tale is a dystopian fiction novel that was written by uh, Margaret Atwood. In fact, un- unironically, it was written in 1984 in post-World War II Berlin. That's where she was living at the time. And, you know, it's a dystopian fiction along the same lines as uh, George Orwell's 1984. And let's see, there's also Catch-22 and Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of writing these these uh, dystopian fictions is not to say this will never happen. It's to send a warning that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, The Handmaid's Tale is not really about abortion. The real warning in this book is concerning, again, women's self-ownership, which is a relatively new concept in human history. It's concerning atrocities against women, which have been made under many flags, including religion, and Christians are not innocent of this. Um, and there's there are many sects in, uh, in Christianity today in America in well-respected uh, denominations that have very low, view, uh, low views of women and 
quite frankly, if you don't see this, you're not paying attention. Now, Margaret Atwood correctly identifies what's at stake in the dystopia, which is women's rights, and more accurately, what we would call libertarian self-ownership. And But self-ownership doesn't give women the right to abort. The real threat is authoritarianism. It's authoritarian-sanctioned, institutionalized violence against women, okay? Mm-hmm. So authoritarianism can come from any source of monopolized power. It can come from the state. It can come from the church. It can come from the family. It can come in business. It can come in education. It can come from a variety of places. And women have the most to lose from authoritarianism. Socialism, fascism, communism, any form of authoritarianism entails the exploitation of women. And we know from history that this has been done Uh, by non-religious governments like the Chinese, Um, but it's it's also been done under the flag of religious governments like in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia or in, like I mentioned earlier, various Christian sects. But the Handmaid's Tale, so this is where, this is part of where the myth comes up. The Handmaid's Tale, like I said, is not about abortion. It's about institutionalized violence against women. And So you can actually have a handmaid's tale scenario with or without legal access to abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a tendency to conflate the legal access to abort as the correct response to violence against women. Um, And I think that that's an error because what that's saying is that the only response to sexual violence against women is to kill the offspring. And that doesn't actually address sexual violence against women. So, you know, this is is really a perfect time to bring up how rape would be handled in a libertarian society um, because this goes hand in glove with how pro-life libertarians are are different and differ from uh, conservative pro-lifers. So... In a libertarian legal order, we are operating from a perspective that rights are based in property rights rather than some sort of ethics-based argument. So more than likely, you're going to have a tort law sort of situation where victims of rights violations are seeking restitution and recompense. And this is usually in terms of being paid for you know, pain and suffering, lost wages, metal, medical expenses, etc. Without legal abortion, or where we've just removed abortion as, as an option, when you have a pregnancy resulting from, from rape, that pain and suffering is increased, lost wages might be increased, medical expenses would definitely be increased. And you also have the cost of childcare and and just raising that child, not not just childcare, but you know the cost for food and shelter and clothes and education and all of those things start to add up. If you have a legal option for abortion, then in these situations of restitution, the cost of that goes down. So you don't have the added expenses for. Uh, the cost to raise a child or the increased medical expenses or the uh, increased rates for for pain and suffering and so forth. 
Um, so with legal abortion, the cost of rape actually goes down. Mm. Without legal abortion, the cost of rape goes up. So reducing the cost of the crime by uh, violating the rights of an innocent human is not only not libertarian, it denies the woman justice for the crime against her, and it effectively lets the rapist off the hook for his crime. So a libertarian legal order would actually raise the salience of sexual violence against women to one of the most costly crimes an individual could commit. So real justice for rape means prohibiting abortion Mm -hmm. and making rapists pay for the full extent of their crime. And also in a tort law situation, they have found that there is a deterrent effect, uh, which is not found with legislative law. So likely in a libertarian situation, you would have the incidence of rape go down just because it costs too much. Now, this certainly can't be guaranteed by the state or an authoritarian society. And actually, I was looking up some of the numbers for legal rape response in the country as it exists now. And it said that for every 50 rapes, only 10 actually get prosecuted. Mm. And of those 10, only, I believe it's seven, actually get convictions. So you have a vast majority of rape victims right now who are not getting justice for the sexual violence against them. And although I think that that's a multifaceted problem and you can't wholly reduce it to abortion, I do believe that part of the reason why women aren't getting uh, the justice that they deserve for sexual violence against them is because abortion is so easy of an answer. And this also goes back to what we pointed out with that book, Subverted, Mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things that is pointed out in that book is that the, the women's rights movement was motivated and driven by women, but the sexual revolution was motivated and driven by men. And it was men who were trying to persuade women to tack on abortion to women's rights. Mm. So Hmm. um, I really, truly believe that uh, the evidence shows that abortion exists to get men off the hook when they want to be irresponsible and when they want to initiate violence against women. And so we're actually losing justice by having abortion be legal. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the violence doesn't necess- isn't just rape. I mean, this uh, is applicable in domestic violence situations. Mm-hmm. Um, any situation where a man would pressure the woman to get an abortion, to do away with the responsibilities right. of pregnancy and caring for a pregnant woman and a newborn. Right. Uh, would be sort of in this in this category. Well, and rape and abuse happens more often in uh, familiar intimate relationships than they do between strangers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it actually it it does absolutely feed into that. So the Handmaid's Tale scenario that Netflix is portraying isn't Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Is it on Hulu? No, you're right. It is on Hulu. 
All right. So the the Handmaid's Tale is on on Hulu, but Netflix has has come out opposing the Georgia law and saying that they're not going to invest um, their business in Georgia so long as the Georgia law is uh, is on the books. And you know this, the Democrats are are taking off with this hand, Handmaid's Tale dystopian. And which I think is just really funny. When I first saw that come on, I thought that that's exactly what they're going to do. They are eventually going to use this as a way of women on the abortion issue. And it certainly worked. But we want to be careful to say that it's not a possible scenario because, you know, we make jokes now that 1984 was not intended to be an instruction manual. You know, we we do have a situation of catch twenty two when it comes to the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have censorship that may not be book burning, like in Fahrenheit four fifty one. But we we are talking about censorship on the internet now, so these scenarios aren't impossible, and we need to realize that. But also, it's not merely because abortion is being prohibited; rather, it's because. We're living under an authoritarian state who doesn't operate on the concept of self-ownership and which doesn't actually care one bit about women. That's why we need to be careful about the dystopia. But you can certainly have a situation where abortion is not legal, but you don't have a a handmaid's tale scenario. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground discussing what's wrong with the abortion debate, uh, but we don't want to leave people feeling like this whole thing is hopeless. There's a lot of reasons to hope from practical things like advances in medical science like we've hit on today and then the hope that we have in Christ as believers. And it's worth noting that while all three of us are Christians and libertarians, not a single position taken during this conversation is exclusively based on scripture. In fact, I don't think we've referenced a Bible verse once in this whole conversation. Uh, so while this position is is certainly compatible with Christian theology, uh, the arguments we've presented today are based on science, embryology, ethics, uh, libertarian political theory, and free market economics. That's why this conversation probably didn't sound like most pro-life conversations you've been a part of, because most pro-life solutions tend to rely on the government uh, and involve some very bad economic thinking. Uh, which we've hopefully busted some of those myths for you today. So in conclusion, ladies, uh, what are some ways that libertarian Christians who are passionate about ending the practice of abortion can make a difference in this contentious debate? Carrie? Right. So look, if the basis of human rights and libertarianism is self-ownership, then the whole point of a libertarian position on abortion is to uphold the absolute self-ownership of both women and the unborn, not one at the expense of the other. In fact, a libertarian position on abortion is is pro-human. So it's pro-man, it's pro-woman, it's pro-offspring. The pro-life side is like the proverbial French aristocrat declaring, let them eat cake or let them have babies without understanding why so many can't or don't want them. And the pro-choice side is like the emperor with no clothes, having believed a con for the sake of pretense, that con being the foundational right of women to destroy human life. I believe that the libertarian position is actually poised for making the paradigm shift on abortion, because we not only have the legal philosophy to back us up and to support 
women's rights and understand those correctly in relation to the fetus. But we also understand the economics and how to not only reduce the felt need for abortion, but how to reduce the cost for for motherhood, for parenthood. So libertarianism promotes an economic environment that not only brings the cost of parenting down, it increases the quality of goods and services that we need to raise our children as well. So we don't need the state to protect access to abortion, especially when it's responsible for making it more expensive to provide for our children. We don't need the state to pay lip service to the so-called war on women when they are failing to failing miserably to even respond to rape and violence against women at all, much less in a just manner. The state's response to violence against women is just kill your baby, and that completely ignores the rights violations of women. So we need a freed market that innovates life-affirming options earlier in pregnancy, provides the means that women can use to better themselves, and we need to be free to exercise our legitimate rights and take responsibility for our freedom through our self-ownership. All of this uh, incidentally applies to men too, but I think it's especially important for women to hear this. But libertarianism is poised to actually bring in a a pro-life era. Thanks, Carrie. Ruth, do you have any concluding thoughts? Uh, Yeah, my thoughts largely echo what Carrie was saying. I would want to highlight what she was talking about earlier when she was discussing rape in how abortion facilitates the continued oppression of women. And it does it outside of the context of rape and abuse also. It does it in school and in the workplace, in society in general, where abortion is used as an easy out to avoid accommodating women and their biology and their needs and their desires as as mothers. If abortion were outlawed, it would open up and stimulate the market to provide these things. And in the same way, like we already talked about, changing the paradigm to appreciate and value the life of the unborn would stimulate the market to provide medical advances to lower the age of viability even further and to address these life-limiting conditions so that maybe they aren't really life-limiting anymore, or to stimulate the market to provide what parents really want when they find out that their baby has a life-limiting condition and they don't want to just abort, but they want to still experience parenthood uh, as best as they can. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is sort of the libertarian vision here as sort of a third way in the abortion debate that uh, we can work to uh, protect and give more opportunity and freedom to unborn children to allow them to lead flourishing lives, but also to affirm and uphold the rights of women and the value of women through this whole process. So, so to you, to you ladies, thank you so much for your time, uh, for contributing your expertise on these issues. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed dialoguing with both of you. Uh, and to you, the listeners, we we give this conversation over to you. Hopefully, uh, this has equipped you and stimulated new thoughts and ideas and given you lots of, of other articles and books and <laughs> ideas you want to go chase down and, and read more about. Um, if you do want to follow up on some of the things we've mentioned, 
Uh, first of all, Carrie hosts a podcast called Mere Liberty, which has four recent episodes on abortion. So if you want to listen to more podcasts on this topic and hear more of the incredibly smart things that Carrie has to say, you can go to mereliberty.com to find those podcasts. Also, Carrie is going to be debating economist Walter Block later this year on the topic of abortion. And you sort of got a preview of that in the conversation today. So there's inf- there's an announcement about that with information about how you can get tickets to the event on LCI's blog. You can find that at libertarianchristians.com. Also on libertarianchristians.com is Ruth's interesting article about cannabis use for women experiencing HG. And you can find the links to all of those in the show notes or on libertarianchristians.com. Lastly, as I mentioned, if you want to get more into the faith side, we've got an audiobook coming out soon called To Freedom. Uh, will be released um, by the Libertarian Christian Institute soon. And if you want to sign up to make sure you know about when that book comes out, you go to www.calltofreedombook.com. Lastly, we want you to know if you found this very interesting that this is not the last episode you'll hear on the topic of abortion. Keep listening in the coming weeks for more. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 